Just a content warning before we get going on this episode. Today, my guest, Krista Corbello, and I talk about her experiences working in the pro-life movement as well as abortion. I recognize that this is a very important topic to talk about, but it may also be difficult or troubling for some listeners to listen to. So please take care when listening to this episode today. This is the Feminine Genius Podcast, a podcast that celebrates all women of God and their unique genius. I'm your host, Rachel Wong. Krista Corbello was raised Catholic and lived in a very culturally Catholic place. And this meant that she didn't have to think too much about calling herself pro-life. But a human rights talk and meeting her biological father helped her to actually see herself in the pro-life movement. She started to speak out about her mother's story and over time learned more about her own story of origin. In learning about a sibling who she lost to abortion, she started the nonprofit Even This Way, a place to provide siblings and families with healing and community. On this episode, Krista shares the relationship between her faith and pro-life journey, what she's learned from running even this way, and her desire to be an open heart in the world today. Hello, Krista. Hi, Rachel. How are you? I am well, thanks. How are you? Doing well. I'm glad we're in the same time zone. <laughs> oh my goodness. Every single time I meet a woman who is in, or they mention that they're in the Pacific time zone, I am always so over the moon because I'm like, oh, 5 p.m. is actually 5 p.m. So that is so great. Thank you for being here. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. Like I mentioned before we hit record, like I've been a, a follower of yours on social media and just a huge fan of all of the work that you're doing. And I know we're going to be talking about a lot of incredible things that you're working on, but maybe for those who are listening in who may not have had the pleasure of meeting you yet, I was wondering if you could introduce yourself and share a little bit of what you do right now. Of course. Um, so my name is Krista Corbello. I am from South Louisiana, but I was actually born in Los Angeles and I now live here. Um, so I came back to, to some degree, came back home, even though I was raised most of my life in Southern Louisiana. South Louisiana is very culturally Catholic. I'm also Filipino American, so culturally Catholic with my heritage as well. My mom, mm -hmm. both my parents have strong Catholic backgrounds. And I was, um, I guess what you could call a cradle Catholic to some degree, um, received all my sacraments. And even from a young age, had a deep faith in God, big questions, even as a little girl. I was raised by my mom as a single mom for the first five years of my life. And then she got married. I got half adopted. I now know it's called an intra family adoption, mm -hmm. which I didn't have that word for it until semi recently being raised in South Louisiana is a huge blessing. And I'm thankful for the Catholic identity that I have because I was, was born there and was raised there and had a great, great family. Um, but when I was a teenager, and I think a lot of people start asking big questions as a teenager, you know, I was wondering about my biological father. I had great deep wounds of being abandoned and not knowing him at all. And I, I would say that's kind of the birthplace of my faith um, and my story, which I'll probably share later. And because of that deep want and desire for a father, 
God gave me a long journey, of course, but he, he really took my hand um, in a radical way when I was 14 years old and went to my first retreat, mm-hmm. experienced Eucharistic adoration for the first time and, and realized, wow, God loves me. Mm-hmm. Um, God really loves me. And this, this hole that I feel, you know, like, oh, maybe he could, he could be the one to fill that. And I started going to that retreat every year in high school, started ministry my senior year of high school, started speaking uh, my senior year of high school as well. And really, he took me to deeper levels of my faith in different seasons. And I can see his work and his hand in my life. And there are people with similar stories to mine who are struggling a lot more than I am. And I really think that in a lot of ways that the Lord has preserved me and saved Mm -hmm. me, kept me safe and even though my different seasons of life have looked different and I've had huge, huge wounds and disappointments and abandonments, relationships ending, just like everyone else, I can see how God showed me his love and his mercy and um, his sacred heart through people, through the sacraments, um, and through just great ministry. I've, I've been a part of really great ministries. I've been blessed by awesome campus ministers um, people who believe in me. And yeah, that's, that's healed a lot of areas of my life. So I'm really thankful that God's done with me what he has. And I'm excited to see what else happens in my life because he's really only shown me good things for the past 15 ish years. Wow. Yeah. Praise God. And I mean, like I have to say too, like one of the things that has really attracted me to you Krista and you know you mentioned this in the in that little piece there too about how you have been speaking since high school and I think that's really been one of the things that has you know moved my heart and attracted me to you is just how clear you know St. Paul comes to mind actually just being able to exhort and and really speak to people speak to their hearts I'm sure like it doesn't come easy and and as you kind of allude to you've had quite a journey. And, and I was wondering if we could dive a little bit deeper into that, if, if you wouldn't mind sharing a little bit about, you know, some of the things that you do speak to, and I'll let you kind of share the story that you have. And uh, yeah. Sure. And I, I've told my story in so many different ways, but I think today I'm just going to start a little bit more chronologically because it's just the way that things have been revealed to me, the way that my own story of origin played out. There, there was so little that I knew for so long and it was almost like this big hanging question mark over my head, if that makes sense at all. Who am I? You know, and I I think all teenagers ask that question, who am I? And for not knowing my biological father, I felt like something was severely missing. And that's not true for everyone who was adopted like I was. But for me, I, I wondered, you know, what could I have done wrong? And, and that, that, that played into where my faith came in, but also I would say I have a pro-life testimony. I did a lot of pro-life work um, when I worked at Louisiana Right to Life and even now working with Rehumanize International, really seeing the importance of the dignity of the human person, I think was like for me, at least the fact that I had to find it in my own self. I had to see my own dignity and my own worth. and, And that came from the question of my own identity. And so as I was a teenager asking those questions, I had a lot of anger issues. I was, I mean, I was so, I felt so abandoned. I felt angry. I was always the person that I wanted to one day meet my father and him to regret missing out on who I was. And so I was like angrily a good person. I was um, like (laughs) involved in clubs and trying to do a lot of different things in the performing arts. And I just wanted to like show him, you know, and in college, I really got deeper in my faith 
and I really didn't know much about the pro-life movement. I was, I'm from South Louisiana, very culturally pro-life just Mm -hmm. because it's also culturally Catholic. And because I, it wasn't hard to be pro-life. I didn't really think hard about that issue, the abortion issue, but in college, I joined the pro-life club. I did the bare minimum. I more did um, the Catholic student center and leadership team there, but I heard this talk. I heard this talk um, when I was in college and it, it was from generation life. And they talked about a lot of the human rights issues in history and compared them all equally. And it made me really realize like, oh, wow, the abortion issue is prominent. Like I need to think about this a little bit more. And for me to have said in college, like, I don't really want to talk about this issue. I don't, it makes me uncomfortable. I don't feel smart enough to be in the pro-life movement for now to be in a place where that's all I do is talk about the pro-life movement. I can see how God planted those seeds of me ending up in the pro-life movement. But my senior year of college, if you can imagine, you know, you're making plans for the future and things like that. I, I remember specifically going to um, this monthly healing mass that they had at the Catholic student center and mm-hmm. they would have people pray over you. And I was praying for about six months straight. Every month I went to this healing mass and I, I asked, can you please pray for me and my father wounds? You know, like I'm going out in the world. I don't want to think about this anymore. And, you know, I basically was like vending machine prayer, like, okay, you're, I'm going to pray for this and <laughs> yep. God's going to take away this wound mm-hmm. of this shadow of a man. And instead, uh, I met my biological father that year, right before I graduated college. So I was around 22 when I met my biological father for the first time and meeting him and then switching jobs into Louisiana Right to Life really opened the door for my story of origin. I started speaking the very little that I knew about my mom's story. And uh, my mom's an immigrant woman and her and my biological father were not married. And when they got pregnant, abortion was on the table. And that was, that was a conversation that was had. And, you know, my grandparents, my mom's parents wanted her to have an abortion. They, she would send pictures of herself pregnant and they would mail them back with X's on her stomach Mm. or ripped up. And they just wanted her, they wanted the best for her. It was a sacrifice for her to come to the States. And it was very scary. It was the nineties and abortion was just so, so the highest numbers of abortion in America were in the nineties, the early nineties when I was born. And when I found that out, that was something that I just held in my heart and I didn't know what to do with it until I started working at right to life. I I interviewed for that job and said, I I think I have a pro-life story. And I started sharing it. And the more I started sharing it, the more details came to life. I found out about my dad leaving. I found out about my grandparents wanting to disown my mom. I found out about other family members who had abortions. And I realized that this issue that I felt so distant from and so far away from, it was really impacting my life, could have taken my life, Mm -hmm. Um, which in a new way, I realized when I found out from my biological father that he had an abortion after I was born. And that realization came for some reason over pancakes at IHOP. Um, I was just super gutsy and just started asking questions. Are you glad my mom didn't abort me? And um, discovering that he had an abortion, like clicked on this resource, Krista. Oh, let me tell you about this website. Let me tell you about this retreat. Um, but later that day when I was alone and I was flying home was when I was, it, re- it came, it came to my mind, like, wait, no, that was my sibling. Oh, wait, no, that could have been me. And I was filled with this existential dread, survivor's guilt, and just depression for the, the death of my sibling. 
uh, my half sibling. And it really bothered me for a long time. I would say the better part of a year I was experiencing post-abortion survivor syndrome pass, um, which is something that I'm learning about with my studies at Divine Mercy University. And now I have the words for it, but at the time it just felt like depression. It felt like being sorry for being alive. It felt like unworthiness. That was the darkest moment in my life. And I've been through dark moments. I've had deep, dark questions about who I am. But at that moment, I felt, God, I don't even know if you're here right now. Hmm. I don't even know if you can take me through this. I don't know how I can come back from this, how I can trust you again, how I can feel worthy of anything good in life. I at least got a life, you know, as hard as it was like my sibling didn't, (laughs) my sibling didn't get to have that life. I did. Mm -hmm. And now I feel unworthy of it. And that was the hardest moment of my life. But God gave me a resurrection from that Good Friday. He gave me an Easter Sunday for this Good Friday um, over the course of many years of just counseling, good spiritual direction, friendship, love from other siblings who understand who have been there, who can really show compassion to suffer with me. So I would say my faith story, my pro-life story, they're so intertwined because it helped me understand who I am in the eyes of God as his beloved child. And even when I felt I was unworthy of that, he still loved me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, thank you so much. And like, I have to say too, like what you just shared, I think is, is something that is so incredibly difficult for me to wrap my head around and I'm sure for many listeners as well and I just want to take a moment to reverence that as well just because that realization where you know you could have had a a sibling here with you and just like the heaviness in your heart when you realize that you know you're here and they're not and yet I think you know through the counseling and therapy good spiritual direction you're able to come to this place of resurrection and I think that that in itself is is something super profound and it needs to be reverenced like I said to see you here and how you're taking that step forward into like bringing that and moving from you know someone who is a survivor which is incredible but also someone who is an advocate someone who is an activist because I'm sure that you are not the only one and I know that from there, uh, I love to dive into the work that you do with Even This Way. I recognize that this is not something that I know very much about. But like you said, you've received support from other folks who have gone through what you have. And I was wondering if you could share a little bit about how Even This Way came to be. And maybe like, when was that moment that you realized that you, I guess, couldn't, I don't want to say just because I, I think that's that's not enough and that's not fair, but really like to move from a place of living it, recognizing it, working through it, trying to heal from it and continuing to heal from it, and then moving into a place of activism. Sure. I mean, really from the start, as soon as I found out that I had a sibling, I thought, why isn't there more talk about this? Why don't Mm -hmm. we have more resources for people like me? And I remember at the time I Googled very often, probably weekly or bi-weekly, I have an aborted sibling. And I was looking for anything online about people talking about that. turns out they do have people talking about it. Um, I just wasn't for whatever reason able to find it. Mm. And it was just a very painful process because I only knew maybe two other people who had aborted siblings. And I'm thankful for the friendship that I have with um, one of them who was 
I would say a few steps ahead of me in their own journey. Mm. And they had gone to healing retreats like Rachel's Vineyard. So they were speaking to me about certain things like naming your sibling and writing letters to them. And I, at the time I was thinking, this is so weird. This is so weird to think about. This is someone you don't know. In my friend's case, they shared a womb with their sibling. I did not. Like, why do I feel this way? I didn't even share a womb with my sibling. Anyway, I, I remember at the time thinking that it was weird to name your sibling and, and thinking my friend, my friend would speak about their sibling and how they were interceding for them and watching over them from heaven. And I, that felt like a weird concept at the time, but I knew that I needed something. And so I went to Rachel's Vineyard actually as a sibling and I went through Project Rachel, which is a 10 week program. In my case, I did it before Rachel's Vineyard, which is the weekend retreat. And both of those things were wonderful. And I'm so thankful for the women that walked with me through that program. But at the retreat, I remember feeling like a square peg trying to go in a round hole and it, it didn't feel quite for me because mm-hmm. it wasn't, it was, it's for post-abortive parents and grandparents and family members who were part of the decision. Right. I wasn't, I wasn't right. a part of the decision. I had nothing to do with the decision. And so I knew in the back of my head that something was going to come from my own experience. And I, I, most of my, the ministries that I look up to, and I'm, I think are wonderful and needed in the world. It's from people who have experienced those things. They're the ones sitting at the table. They're the ones who have lived it and and felt it and resurrected from it in some cases. So I knew that God had placed and planted something deep, deep in my heart all the way back from 2016. And I also knew that I needed to go through my own healing process and that it would take a little while. So in 2019, I went to the Given Forum, which you've had a lot of Given alumna on your Mm -hmm. podcast, and uh, they're all wonderful. Shout out to Corinne Stersenik from The Catholic Woman. She was a 2016 grad. So I went to Given in 2019 with the action plan of Even This Way. I don't remember if at that time I even had a name for it, but I knew that my application was, I know that my application was very thorough Mm -hmm. (laughs) because it's, it's very, it's, they ask a lot of deep questions. And so I had to ask myself a lot of deep questions. And around the same time that I applied for given, I applied for grad school at Divine Mercy University, getting my master's in psychology. And it was kind of the same thing where we had to have a capstone project. And the capstone project is like an action plan where it has to be something that you can implement And so I kind of went to these things at the same time, went through these things at the same time, and it it gave me more context for my own, my own action plan, my own capstone project. And so because those things were happening at the same time, and I'm actually, God willing, going to finish this fall um, at Divine Mercy University, it's been it's been exciting to learn more and get words for the things that I already experienced. And then with given having mentorship and, and prayer and community from the given community. And it's just been good to have those resources, both the academic field, as well as the spiritual aspect and the the entrepreneurial spirit of it. So both of those resources were really great for me to help me fine tune what even this way is, which is a program for siblings, you know, written by me, a sibling, a surviving sibling. I find that to be, you know, you mentioned yourself that perhaps at the time it was a little strange or weird, but I have to say that there is something as an outsider listening to you express and and kind of go through and hearing a talk that you had given, you mentioned a beautiful letter that you wrote to your sibling. And 
I think that there's something just like so unique and beautiful about it. You mentioned that your friend was saying, yeah, it's like the sibling is interceding for them, kind of like a guardian angel. But in many ways, I want to say it might be an even closer relationship than an angel, but truly like a, a sibling. And in terms of like that relationship, like how has that grown? How have you seen that maybe change or evolve through even this way? And how, you know, you yourself have come to resurrect from this? Like how has that relationship changed? So I actually had another sibling that I met about a year and a half ago, and I spoke to them on the phone about our experiences and they just, they had such a sweet spirit about them. And they said that our siblings must be friends in heaven now. And just as we're friends here on earth, our siblings have met each other in heaven. And they, they asked me what my sibling's name was. I gave them their initials. Um, I kind of have like two names in my head, like one for a boy, one for a girl, but my, my sibling's name is MK. And I I told my sibling friend here on earth (laughs) that my sibling in heaven is MK. And they sent me this necklace, this beautiful necklace with their initials on it. And I wear it. I wear it when I go speak, I wear it whenever I do activism and it it feels like a a beautiful, like a sacrament, you know, if we're sacraments in the world uh, and external sign of an invisible reality. That's what that, that necklace means to me. Um, mm-hmm. Because a lot of people, when they mourn, they, they need that external sign, like for people with miscarriage, like to send them a card, that's very important for them. For me, in my case, like to have that external thing, that external thing to show the relationship that I have with my sibling. And, you know, I take it with me in places and I, I wear it whenever I'm in DC and on the steps of the Capitol and things like that. And at the March for Life, I wear it. So I can remember kind of like that, that beautiful burden, um, the necklaces feels like a beautiful burden that I get to wear um, my sibling around my neck. Yeah. It's, it's beautiful to think of that. And so now every time I meet a sibling here on earth, or they email me sometimes, which that happens a lot through my website mm-hmm. and social media, I'll, I'll tell them, you know, tell me about your sibling, like what you think about them, like what's your relationship with them. And then I say, you know, I think our siblings are friends and have been. And it's really cool to pass that on to other siblings. And they, we find consolation in that, I think. Um, I know mm-hmm. I did. So hopefully the people that I share that with also feel the same way. Right. And I'm glad that you touched on that because that's exactly where I wanted to go too, is that that was 2019 that you were in Given. And of course, like you, here we are a couple of years later. And I was curious to hear from your perspective what it has been like. And you use that term, beautiful burden, you know, that must be what it is like, because when you receive these stories, and sometimes I'm sure unsolicited from complete strangers, how has that helped you to grow in this ministry? And also just what is it like to receive truly a beautiful burden and to be able to journey with these people? Because I'm sure that that's probably like one of the aspects of even this way is to be able to like first provide resources and provide a space for people like yourself to go through and mourn and also to support one another, but also to journey together in finding healing. And like you said, finding consolation in one another. Yeah. So I'm was raised the oldest of three girls, um, but I'm actually one of seven, including my aborted sibling in Tagalog. Um, in the Philippines, they have a word for oldest sister. It's Ate. And, and I am an Ate. I was raised with two younger sisters and I act like an Ate in my friend groups. And I feel like even this way is just another way to be an Ate, mm-hmm. to be an older sister. I get to be an older sister, even to my, my sibling who's in heaven by sharing their story and sharing their lives and, and knowing that they're not forgotten. And to do that with the siblings that I walk with, usually I meet them 
if I'm speaking at a conference or something, they'll come up to me after, mm-hmm. or sometimes I'll like do it in the Q and a and say like, is it going to hurt forever? Like, am I going to, am I going to carry this burden forever? And, you know, sometimes I have to honestly say, yeah, yeah, you're going to carry that forever. You know, it's been six, seven years since I found out, I don't know, I can't do math. Um, six years, maybe since I found out and it still hurts. It still hurts. And sometimes I still cry about it. And every once in a while, I pick up my guitar and play the little song that I wrote and played at their memorial service. And those kinds of things mean a lot to surviving siblings, like having, having someone to talk to, having someone understand. And I've heard it from the people that I speak to, whether it be on the phone or via email, some people are just relieved to know someone else who, because a lot of times, sometimes it's like super disenfranchised grief where Mm -hmm. people will say, well, you had nothing to do with that decision. You shouldn't feel bad about this. Why do you feel bad about this? And sometimes people carry that burden for decades. It's interesting to see, you know, people who are, you know, my parents' age speaking to me, like, I feel so unqualified to talk to you. You're a grown adult. And in a way I get to still you know, share with you this beautiful burden. It's, that's a great way to describe it. And it's beautiful because there was a life that we get to celebrate and we still get to acknowledge and reverence. You know, this was a life that, that God willed and planned and a soul and their, their beauty and their individuality. And it's also a burden because they're not here and we didn't get to meet them. And death is sad. And grief is hard and mourning is a process. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I want to, to touch on jumping off of that point, like on your site, you mention three terms that I would love to just hear more about because I've seen combinations of these words before, but certainly I'm, I'm sure that for you as a pro-life activist, someone who has really like lived through this and, you know, you spend so much of your life talking about this, but you mention human flourishing, consistent life ethic, and I love this, utility or effective beauty. And, and I wanted to dive deeper into each of those, I guess, like to, to whatever degree you would, you would want to there, but just because you mentioned human dignity earlier on. And of course, as you may know, like with this podcast being about the feminine genius coming from the great man himself, John Paul II, who we know was also just a a huge proponent for human dignity, the dignity of man and woman. But yeah, I I just love to hear more about why you chose like those particular terms, like how you came to, to that combination. I guess I'm a bit of a word nerd myself. So I'm like, this is beautiful to read, but yeah, so that wasn't really a question, but I would just love to talk to you more about that. Sure. Yeah. So human flourishing is straight from the Catholic Christian meta model of the human person, which is from my program at Divine Mercy University. A lot of my mm-hmm. professors dive into this topic and that's the crux of our program is human flourishing and having people reach that level of operating flourishing and, uh, and that's, that's holiness. And that's what they called eudaimonia. It's the Greek for the blessed life, the blessed life. And that doesn't have to be a virtue thing necessarily. Like Aristotelian philosophy is going into like virtuous friendships and things like that. That's it's, it's not even just the spiritual virtue, which I, as a Catholic, that's what I strive for, but it's the human virtue, the human virtue of yeah, living life with virtue and, and consistently, I guess, living in an integrated way, living in an integrated way. That's so important. That's what human flourishing is to me. Um, and that's operating out of love and compassion and respect for the human person. 
which kind of ties into the consistent life ethic, which to me, I, I, I still like use the word pro-life, but I know a lot of people have their own qualms with that word. And so working with Rehumanize, um, Rehumanize International, they're like one of the top notch consistent life ethic groups, at least here, but hopefully internationally too. Um, and they talk about the dignity of every human person, right? Mm-hmm. Every, no, everyone deserves to live free from violence. Everyone deserves to live free from discrimination and nothing should take that away from you. And that's just basic to me, human rights 101, mm-hmm. right? Human rights mm-hmm. 101 says that everyone has equal dignity. And I know people have issue with the consistent life ethic, but for me, that to me, that's just being Catholic. Right. To me, that's living my Catholic faith in the world, right? And it's important to, of course, live that in the church, but living it in the world is where conversion happens. That's where our evangelization happens is when we're living it in the world. And I think we've lost that to some degree with, at least in the States, everything is so dichotomous and there's no nuance in things. But when you are flourishing, you can see the nuance in things and morality doesn't have nuance, but human experience does. Mm -hmm. And we have to be able to discuss things and let people be where they are in their journey. And for me with the consistent life ethic, that means being able to have conversations that are difficult and saying, I'm not going to convert you to the same belief that I have right now, but I'm willing to have this conversation over a, a long time. And, and hopefully, you know, I can be consistent in the way that I live my life, respecting human life and cultivating the culture of life in my daily life, right? Not just in DC, not just outside of Planned Parenthood, but in my daily life, am I treating people with respect? Am I treating people with love and compassion that they deserve because they are created by God? Who cares if what their faith is? Who cares what the color of their skin is or what their job title is? Everyone deserves dignity and love and compassion. So that's the consistent life ethic. And I would say butility is uh, a word that my former co-director, Alex Sagers, and I invented. And maybe it was invented before, but for us, it was a huge thing. Um, we were seeing a lot in the pro-life movement that was had great information, but maybe wasn't like super easy on the eye. And we, we were really, we really liked graphic design and we definitely grew in our graphic design and the creativity and things that are beautiful and what we created. And we, we, we decided that butility was so important to us when we met Rehumanize actually was that they had great material with excellent content and it was beautiful and it was effective. It was effective because it, it catches your eye. If you're passing out something on the sidewalk, you have three seconds to catch their attention. Otherwise they're going to throw it in the next trash can they pass. You know, I've done, I've done that on the college campuses. You see people throw it in the next trash can over, but if it's beautiful, it can catch your eye. Maybe you'll read a couple of things and maybe you'll like actually take it in. And that's not just with like print media and things on the websites and graphic design. That's in the way that we live our lives. Are our lives beautiful? Are, are we expressing something with our lives that say, hey, I want to know more. I want to have a conversation with you. Are, are we able to discuss hard topics with people and, and people feel safe to talk to us about it? Um, so for me, it's about communication. It's about using my gifts as an artist to express things that maybe are easier through an art form, an art medium, like music and songwriting. But for me to share my story through song, sometimes that, that it's, it's more, you know, it's easier to grasp sometimes whenever it's an art form. And I think art activism needs to like find a new place in the world. And I, I want artists to be able to, to share what, what their experiences are and for people 
to like think twice about something like abortion. So that's what butility is. And I'm very passionate about all of these things. <laughs> that's why they're on my website. But sure. um, thank you for asking. Oh, of course, because I think like what it just what stands out to me, I think, just from hearing you share all of that is truly like it's those transcendentals, right? Truth, beauty and goodness. And just being able to live that consistently to, to take some of your language there, but just like live it consistently through and through. Because I think many times when it comes to people doing ministry, sometimes I, I think the misconception is that you do the whatever, like the nine to five ministry or like whatever, and you do it for a period of time, but it kind of just ends, it begins and ends at the ministry. But I think what you point to, especially as Catholics, especially as, you know, St. Paul talks about us being ambassadors for Christ, like it truly has to be every waking moment, being that face of Christ out in the world. And like you said, like, am, am I living consistently? Am I treating people with dignity and respect? Not just when I'm, when I have my ministry hat on, but truly like at every point. And like, I, I think that it's something that is so important. Um, we always need to be reminded of, regardless of what ministry, what cause, remembering that our God is, is someone who is outside of space and time. And for us as walking faces of him here on this earth, just to be able to remember that and to always live through that. So it's something I think I'm going to take with me beyond this conversation. And I hope that many listeners do as well as that. Just something to reflect on. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Krista, this has been such a, I think, like a, a moving topic for me. And I, I've learned so much from you. And I know that you, in the work that you're doing, whether it's like speaking or, as you mentioned, art activism and being able to convey information, not only through effective speech and effective communication, but also through beautiful art and, and singing. You have a beautiful singing voice. Thank um, you. Yeah, of course. I guess like for anyone who may be listening to this, um, and I just want to circle back to something that you had mentioned earlier where you were, you mentioned something briefly about how you were at first, like very unsure as to like, you know, how can I be able to kind of go out and, and speak on this? I guess like for anyone who might be listening to this episode right now and, you know, first off, maybe has experienced something that you have or something like another type of trauma and who may feel a pull to go and, and speak out or to share or to minister to other people, but they may be feeling that doubt. They may be feeling like, you know, I am not that educated or not educated enough or I don't speak as well as Krista does or you know I, I don't sing I don't do art whatever it might be what advice or encouragement do you have for those people I would say just try it if you feel that pull see what doors God opens because he has opened so many doors for me I wanted to be a speaker from the time I was 14 never knew how that was going to happen it was it was through speakers at conferences at retreats that that really made me think twice about things gave me uh, a path to conversion and reversion and reversion over and over again and I wanted to do that and you know I studied PR I didn't know what was going to happen with that but when God opened that door to Louisiana right to life that was when I said okay this is it I'm, I'm doing the thing that God wanted from me. I didn't think this was my biggest, deepest, darkest secrets for a long time. That's not what I wanted to talk about. But when God opens a door, you know, you can feel it sure in your heart that he's going to provide the grace that's necessary, the community that's necessary for you to do that. 
And also just with doubt and fear, I've experienced it. I've, I've had to take a break just for my own mental health. I was given 70 talks a year for three and a half years straight. And to tell that story over and over again, and to talk about the violence of abortion, I was like re-experiencing it over and over again and re-traumatizing myself to some degree. And I got tired. It's okay to take a break. People I know have taken longer breaks and you know, even though it's a good cause and it's beautiful, sometimes we need to like realize our own weaknesses. And I, I certainly have done that too. And so to know, no, to be prudent with that, I would say is important. Like know when it's your time to speak and when it's your time to go to the mountain and pray. Oh, wow. That is such a beautiful image and analogy and taking after our Lord himself, just how he too took that time to, to step back and, and to be quiet and and, and really pray, like you said, pray about it. And especially as women, being able to, yes, like you said, kind of speak out, but also to be receptive and being willing to listen. So being Mary as well as Martha, I, I guess, like if we can pull some some beautiful women from the Bible. But perhaps that is a really beautiful segue into asking you about your personal feminine genius. You're so beautiful in the way that you carry yourself and you carry your ministry, how you speak to other people, how you treat other people with dignity and respect and you treat them with reverence. Um, but how have you seen your, your personal feminine genius develop throughout your life so far? I would say given was a really big part of me understanding my own feminine genius mm -hmm. because they, they focus on it so much in the forum. And I, I would say my heart, my last name is Corbello. It means beautiful heart. Although I've oh. had debate with people. Some people think it means heart battle. Oh. Both of those are, <laughs> both of the, I, I, I relate to both of those. Of course, it's my adoptive father's name. Um, so I, they have a beautiful heart. They, they welcomed me and opened their hearts and their, their family to me when they adopted me. And I, I feel that same, the way that I received God's love through that family, I feel that same need to be that way to, to those that I encounter in my family and my friends at the grocery store, at the coffee shop. And I think my heart is open as Christ's heart was open as Mary's heart was open. And I, I want to be the open arms of Christ to the world. And I think God's given me, has shown me his own open heart to, to teach me how to do that. And I, I feel, I feel that's what drives my devotion to human dignity is that God has shown me my own worth hmm. and the people around me, their worth and how I can encounter God through every person that I meet. And I think it's very important for us to, to receive God's heart, his sacred heart, his open wounded heart in order to be that heart to the world, which mm -hmm. needs it. The world needs an open heart. Um, so that's, that's, that's how I see it in my own life. I, it, it drives everything that I do. Every song that I write, every speech that I give, every person that I encounter, I, I just want them to feel my, to feel my love and to feel God's, God's love through me. Hmm. Wonderful. Yeah. And it's, it truly is like we, we need to be able to receive and have received his love for us before we are able to, to give that out. So I just appreciate you being such a witness to that. And of course, like a witness to the immense struggles and, and pain and grief that you have experienced and then being able to, to rise and resurrect from that and now go forth and serve other people. So Krista, thank you so much for your time today, for, for just receiving me as well and for trusting me and listeners with some of the like incredible testimony that you have. So thank you so much.
Thank you, Rachel. I've been a huge fan. You're awesome. You have wonderful guests. It's it's an honor to be among one of them. Thank you. Yeah, And Krista, just as we close off here, would you be able to lead us in a closing prayer? Yes, please. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Come, Holy Spirit. Lord, from any doubt and despair, deliver me, Jesus. From distrust in your identity and who you are, deliver me, Jesus. From anything holding me back, from giving you everything, deliver me, Jesus. That you are my hope and my strength, Jesus, I trust in you. That you are who you say you are, and indeed I am who you say I am, Jesus, I trust in you. That you have good plans for me, Jesus, I trust in you. Lord, thank you so much for Rachel, for her work, for her ministry. Thank you for her heart and her openness to all of her guests and listeners. Lord, we ask for the intercession of Mary, and we ask that you be with us and give us the grace that we need this day. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Krista, thank you so much. Thank you again, Rachel. Thank you so much to Krista Corbello for joining us on the Feminine Genius Podcast. You can follow her at Krista Corbello on Instagram, and from there you'll find all the great work that she's doing. Learn more about Even This Way by checking out their website, eventhisway.org. I've left links to these in the episode description below. You can learn more about the Feminine Genius Podcast by following us on Facebook and Instagram at FemGeniusPod. And you can listen and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and many other platforms. All of this information can be found on our home on the web, FeminineGeniusPodcast.com. We'll talk to you soon, and God bless you always. Always.